Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. I'm Dr. Levi Sowers and my co-host Brandon Ray is here. Hello, everyone. Today uh, is marks our fourth episode and it's a continuation of episode two where the topic is traumatic brain injury uh, and resulting headaches that come from that known as post-traumatic headache as well as migraine headaches. And joining us today, we have a anonymous female veteran who has for a number of years suffered from post-traumatic headache and or migraines as well as light sensitivity. Yeah, I think this this veteran has been one of my favorite interviews to date. Um, she has been really uh, communicating with us uh, about the experiences she's had with the treatment of her migraine headaches, uh, and that's been pretty exciting, I think. I would agree. Also joining us today is Dr. Andrew Russo, who is a professor at the University of Iowa. Uh, Dr. Russo is a leader in migraine research and has been integral in the development of a new class of migraine drugs, and we welcome him here today. So today, uh, we're sitting here with a combat veteran from Operation Enduring Freedom, who served in Iraq, uh, specifically in the Army. Uh, and uh, today we're going to be talking to her about her uh, chronic migraines that she got due to her service uh, in the military. So when you first, um, how did you end up joining the military? I joined because of 9-11. I, my former boss from when, back when I was in high school, his son actually had to run from the towers when the towers started coming down. And that kind of hit me in the feels. Mm-hmm. So, in February 11th, I uh, of the fall the following, the following yeah. February I joined the army. Mm-hmm. So were you in high school then, or were you? No, out? I was already in college. Oh, okay. So I did have college background. So when I enlisted, I actually enlisted with a little higher rank. I didn't have a degree, but since I had college credit. Mm-hmm. I actually enlisted as an E2 versus an E1. Okay. So I was a little bit ahead of everybody because a lot of, I was 21 when I went through basic. So I was quoted the grandma of the platoon. Yeah. So you were older for your So story. my battle buddy was 18 fresh out of high school. Yeah. So I, uh, I was in for a total of five years. Uh, right after basic and AIT advanced individual training, my unit was put on alert. And <coughs> two and a half weeks after I graduated, we were deployed. Went to Fort McCoy, and then we went over to uh, Kuwait and Iraq. Okay. In 03. And then how long were you in uh, Iraq for? Me, personally, eight months. Eight months? Did you do more than one tour there? No. No, just one? That was it. Okay, cool. And so um, it was your time in Iraq where you received your, did you get a TBI? Is that how, what, how this started? Can you tell me how your migraine started? Uh, the migraine started, I don't remember if it was late fall 03, winterish 04, when the situation's kind of funny. I didn't laugh when it happened. I w- had to go to the restroom about 1.30 in the morning. And in our forward operating base, all we had were porta potties. 
So I stumbled out to the porta potty. The minute I tried to sit down, boom! And there was a vibration. I re remember things shaking a little bit. And then, sure enough, we don't get mortared once, we got mortared twice. All I remember is the second boom being closer, and that's all I remember. And then I woke up going, kind of putting my hands around, you know, feeling, make sure I'm okay. And I just beelined it back to my cot and hid in my cot till my work shift. So you actually lost consciousness? I guess. You think? Something something occurred? S something happened. Yeah. And I didn't think anything of it. I didn't report it. I didn't. It's like, oh, yeah, well, I was outside for another mortar attack. It's not a big deal. And then that's when my ears started ringing. That's when the migraine started. How, how and long after, did you think? I don't remember. Don't that remember. I don't remember. But sometime afterwards. Yeah. Okay. I remember being there at the forward operating base, completely buried between my poncho liner and my sleep system, covering my head, curled up because of my migraine. I was on my shift where we worked, couldn't even work because of the migraines. And it was just, that's the way it was. Did you know it was happening at the time? All I had was a really, really bad headache. Yeah. Can you describe your headache a little bit or what your headaches are like? Have they changed over time? Um, yes, they actually have. The uh, migraines, there for a while, it was just come and go. And that I noticed, and I came back, I'd have migraines, sometimes I'd throw up, sometimes I don't. I have a really strong stomach, so to get me to throw up takes a lot. Mm -hmm. But I am extremely nauseated. Well, well, fast forward, I took a medical discharge in 07, and honorable mm -hmm. medical discharge. And I went, decided to go back to school in 2009. Finished my associates, I was 12 credit hours away, finished up at Kirkwood, and then transferred to Iowa. Mm -hmm. And that's when I really, re and throughout the year, the course of the years, neurology was trying to figure out the VA what to do with me. Mm -hmm. They did not know what to do with me. And we were trying different medications, one good example is nortriptyline. I took the nortriptyline. I got up out of my recliner. I woke up in my recliner. Just knocked you out? Yeah. 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 I guess. <laughs> um, nothing was helping. They were looking into my sinuses. They were. I asked for my eyes to be tested. I got tested once, diagnosed with B9 floaties, and that was it. So I was just neurology constant. So did you um, did you did you know it was migraines at the time when you were getting these? And how often were they occurring? The VA told me I was having migraines. The okay. neurology department was. Yeah. Yeah, they diagnosed me with the migraines. Okay. So at that point, I knew what I was having. And how often were they occurring? A lot. Back then, I can't remember honestly. Was it, is it safe to say that your life sort of became a blur Yeah. because of the migraines themselves? My life has been a blur since 2003. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And that's when the migraines started in yeah. 2003? Yeah. Three, four. Right there 
at towards the end of '03, we went to the FOB two days before Thanksgiving in '03. So it was at that Ford operating base. Mm -hmm. So it was late fall, early winter when it happened. Okay. So um, can you describe? Do, do you know that a migraine is coming on? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. Okay. It depends a lot on factors where I can kind of get that sense in my head. I have, I guess, three different migraines now. So if I have a sense in my head that something just doesn't feel right, I know something's coming. I know it's coming. That's a general migraine. My sinuses, they diagnosed me as sinus migraines. I've never heard of sinus migraines <laughs> until... Neurology diagnosed me with sinus migraines. And when my sinuses get stuffed up and it gets really bad and my upper gum line starts pulsing, then I have a sinus migraine. Now, back at Iowa in 20, 2010, 2012, was my educational career at Iowa with my bachelor's. When the light, the green technology lights, the LED fluorescence, everything started really booming mm -hmm. in the stores, everywhere. That's when I started really having problems in my eyes. And I don't remember getting my bachelor's degree, honestly. Because I was at that point getting migraines every day. The rate of the severity differed per day. Mm -hmm. Like, I always had pain. I couldn't pinpoint it. I just knew my head was hurting. Mm -hmm. And so what I would do for, here's a ex general example. The new Menards out um, south of town. I'd walk into Menards within 30 seconds to a minute, I had a migraine. Like a bad because migraine lights. because of the lights. Yeah. And I was, I always had to carry Imitrex with me and pop an Imitrex. Or, I and then I started just avoiding these stores that had the newer lights in it just because I couldn't see. Yeah. So, I demanded the VA to send me back to an eye doctor. They sent me to an outside so, provider. So, at that point, you thought it was maybe due to your eyes. Yeah. At that point, I did. Okay. Yes. Um, so, this is really common in migraine. So, lights, bright lights, uh, fluorescent lights especially will trigger people who are light sensitive. So migrainers, roughly 80% of migrainers are photophobic or sensitive to light. Mm -hmm. And um, light can exacerbate headaches, so it can make it worse, or the light can trigger migraine. And that seems to be what was going on here. <clears throat> and I had no clue at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do now, obviously, yeah. but. Um, so what I did was they sent me to an outside provider and I feel bad, I made his tech cry she was trying to test my eyes in clinic with a tv screen with an led light backdrop light and she did not she started crying she actually got up and walked out and got the doctor because and i was just i felt bad i was telling her what i'm seeing a blurry 3d image and i can't see it because my eyes start watering and Everything was like squiggly in front of my eyes. So she brought the doctor in. He looked at me. He goes, you're going back to the VA. I got a doctor for you. 
and that's where I met Dr. Randy Carter. Mm -hmm. And he's been taking, I've been under his care for about five years. And yeah. that's when he diagnosed me with the photophobia. <coughs> we have tried various types of glasses, dark glasses. We've had the orange cocoons. I went back to my turret goggles, um, or, you know, turret goggles in quotes. Like the wraparounds. The wraparound widely yeah. access G1s because it was blocking all the sunlight. We had them very dark. These are just above darkness there street legal mm -hmm. in quotes um this particular pair that i walk around with now are polarized on the back and the front lenses and these work great these have been working great so how would you say that that your migraines negatively affected your life you've already gone into it a little bit but i besides the disruption of your eyes and, and the pain what has happened to your life since 2003? So basically, I have to walk around with medication. Mm -hmm. I had numerous jobs. I've gone through numerous jobs. So it sounds like you've had to, or you've experienced some things uh, <coughs> that you didn't have before, like say going to Menards uh, in particular when they have the, probably it doesn't help that they have the giant light display right at the front door. Um, right. But... Uh, so light being one of the biggest triggers um, when you're experiencing migraine, uh, what other uh, activities have you found interrupted that you really experienced interrupted before, daily type of stuff? Um, extracurricular activities, uh, fishing, Yeah. the glare off the lake. I'm a big outdoors girl. Mm -hmm. I grew up a tomboy, so I'm all outdoors. I'm a very big golfer. So being out in the middle of the golf course, nothing like being out in the middle of the golf course and having to pick up your ball, go into the pro shop, give yourself injections, wait an hour, then go back out and finish. Um, or being at work, being the only person at your job because everyone's gone for the day, get a migraine so bad, nobody can understand what you're saying and you can't just get up and walk out. Yeah, so do you feel like there's uh, a stigma attached to your migraines? Yeah. Uh, can you describe that a little bit? Um, what do you mean by stigma? So do, do you feel like people don't understand what's happening? Like yeah. uh, that it's hard for people to understand that you're actually in pain? So yeah. migraines often referred to as this invisible disease, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not like, it's, it's difficult to understand. It's not like cancer. Even though it's one of the most debilitating uh, diseases in the world, according to the World Health Organization, um, people just don't see it, right? So it's it's, it's like it, it's not a good comparison to make it to mental health problem, but it's it's this invisible sort of thing that's difficult for people to understand, and then it, it becomes a problem for people to get them to believe you, yes, um, yes. to understand the pain, to get doctors to believe you. Uh, I think that's a major problem in the field. I actually, to be honest, to go back, you know, go off on that one. I've had a couple doctors tell me that it is all in my mind yeah. and actually documented in my VA records <clears throat> that it was all in my mind. Mm -hmm. And I had a specific doctor corner me in a room and say, I don't know what your problem is. I don't know why you're always in pain. And needless to say, that was the last physical conversation I had with that man. I got a new doctor. 
because where do you go at that point? Yeah, where do you go at that point? <laughs> and so I'm I'm a fighter and I've always wanted to have answers and I think now within the last five years or so we're finally getting the answers I've been seeking since so three. Yeah. You know, um, in in addition to migraine being this sort of, you know, people often, there, there's this idea that oh, if you just have a headache, you should just take a couple aspirin and, you know, lie down for a little bit or relax for a little bit yeah. and you'll be better. But migraines are very different from that. There's all these sensory abnormalities, which you've been describing quite well with the nausea, the vomiting. Um, you might have uh, touch sensations uh, or pain in, in other areas of your body when you have these headaches. And so it's more than just a headache, right? Mm -hmm. and, and like you know this firsthand, but a lot of people just don't understand that because once again, you just can't, they can't experience your migraine, right? Even doctors uh, can sometimes be very ignorant towards uh, the fact of migraine. And so um, you, it seems like you've worked or, or tried for a long time to treat these, and then all of a sudden you found a treatment, right? I did. In, in 2018, you found a treatment. And what is that? <laughs> Uh, I have been told by my, uh, by Dr. Carden, I was, was explaining about this treatment you were doing, experimentation with this new drug, and also my resident neurologist was explaining the same thing, and when it, FDA finally approved it, I, mean, I had both doctors, you need to get on this. Well, unfortunately, Dr. Carden was, a, was away. And so we were in email communication. My neurologist was trying to get me on it. However, the VA said no because they wanted me on Depakote, which causes weight gain. Now, why would I want to weight, gain weight? Doesn't that also cause cardiovascular, pulmonary, diabetes, everything else? It kind of just spirals. And how is that going to help my migraines by gaining weight? No, it's not. So I put up a fight. I was willing to pay for it out of pocket with no insurance. I was all I needed was the doctor's signature to get the medicine. Nobody would do it. I got on the phone. I called the Trump VA hotline and got it. And that's how I ended up with the Amovic. And I took it the night of the 22nd of December. Forced myself because I had to fly out of state for something. I flew back and let the medicine warm up. So it was about midnight. I made myself stay up till about 2 in the morning after I took the shot. And I, I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't feel anything. So I'm like, um, do I want to go lay down? Do I want to go sleep? Am I going to be okay? And I was feeling my face. I was, you know, just like... Wow. <laughs> and over the course of the month, um, weird things happened. I could touch my face. I realized I was touching my face, but I couldn't really feel it. <coughs> or my sinuses would fill up. And the only way I knew if my nose was stuffed up is if I sniffled. And that was freaky. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest one of all was I was able to physically take off my glasses in different types of light. I have a household, everything's incandescent or natural light. 
-hmm. I keep it as dark as I can, get away with it. But I do like my light. But I took off my glasses as an experiment. Every once in a while, I still get flashes in front of my eyes. I get little squiggles in front of my eyes. No pain. So you still get auras? Yes. But no pain? No pain. So my interpretation of the Amovig is a nerve block, something similar to a nerve block. Mm -hmm. And that's my own personal interpretation because everyone's going to act different. Yeah, I get all these weird symptoms. You know, everyone, I, I still get the upset stomach, so I know something's going on in a sense because I'm like, well, I haven't eaten anything that's going to make me sick. Um, and I still get it in my eyes, but I can walk around without my glasses. I like wearing my ball caps or wearing some type of a hat to protect looking up, but. So it's really highlighting how. Uh even though this drug is uh, supremely effective, as you're describing, as treating the pain, it still doesn't get rid of all the symptoms associated no. with migraine. No. But that being said, it sounds like it's been particularly life-changing yes. in the fact that you can take your glasses off, which to non-migraineurs doesn't seem like a big uh, a big event to do, but for a migraineur who's light-sensitive, being able to take off their glasses and it not being an issue has got to be a great feeling. I bought my house, my first home five years ago in this down in southeast Iowa, everyone knew me as the woman with the glasses. Mm -hmm. uh, the comments were, can I have your autograph to, you know, it's awfully bright and, you know, I had comments and I didn't let them get to me. I didn't care. I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. Well, now I'm walking around these towns without my glasses on. They're like, who are you? <laughs> and I'm like, I put, and I always carry my glasses anyway. I put my glasses back on. I said, is that better? And like, what happened? <laughs> yeah. And literally, I've had kids come, kids just stare at me going, who are you? And I put my glasses back, take off my hat, put the glasses back on. And they're like, oh, okay. Do you do the slow motion movie glasses putting on? <laughs> <laughs> I, I do yeah. sometimes. Right, right. you got to have a little fun with it. <laughs> Um, so I do, I mean, I understand it's prophylactic. Mm -hmm. Um, this is 10 times better than Botox. I tried the whole Botox thing. I got the cephalid device as well. This, the aim of it really was, did a 360. I was able to go have a golf lesson with my swing coach, with the sun directly coming down in my face, I intentionally took my my uh, hat and glasses off and was able to swim club. Yeah, that's awesome. That's outside. Yeah. <clears throat> and that was back when it was like 50 degrees back in, in December, January. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this has been a very big Fish, breakthrough. Fishing is next on the checklist. Fantastic. So just one last question about your, your photophobia. Um, it's what we're interested in as researchers. Mm -hmm. That's what we study in our lab. So do you think that the Amovig itself helped with the photophobia? So is, is it, are lights less uh, noxious to you? Or is it the pain that's gone? The pain's gone. 
So lights are still so bright. So the lights, the light, certain lights I can tolerate. Mm -hmm. Certain lights I cannot. Blue lights should be illegal. I don't know why they came out with those blue lights, especially in those newer cars. I don't think I've met anybody who enjoys the new. <laughs> no. <laughs> I sure don't. Yeah. Um, the biggest, the the biggest thing that has that I've noticed in this, I'm on month two. Mm -hmm. I had my second injection January twenty second. I, when I'm driving without my glasses on, and I've got headlights coming towards me, I cannot stare at that car. I have to look straight ahead or off to the side still because it still hurts my eyes. I mean, I could still, I could just feel some, you know, just my eyes are going blurry. Mm -hmm. And that's like my only indicator is I get a problem, you know, try to avoid it. <coughs> and of course, when, you know, like a couple days ago when it was like rain or snow or something, mm -hmm. people have their headlights on mm -hmm. and... It's day, it's in a sense daylight, but that still kind of bothered me a little bit the other day, but no pain. Of course. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. So, no so, pain. So, but it sounds like, it sounds like your photophobia has actually gone down quite a bit because you don't have to like, it seems like you'd, you know, three months ago, you'd be wearing sunglasses right now talking to us. Right. Mm -hmm. And right now you're not, they're laying on, our, on the table in front of us. Yes. Um, so that's pretty cool. Um, well, anyway, I thank you so much for coming and talking to us. I would now like to introduce uh, Dr. Andrew Russo. He's a professor of physiology at the University of Iowa and director of animal research at the VA Center for the Prevention and Treatment of Visual Loss. He's an expert in uh, the migraine field and has been studying uh, a compound called calcitonin gene-related peptide or a uh, CGRP is what we'll refer to it as and has been influential in the development of a new class of migraine drugs that specifically target this compound. Um, as you heard from our anonymous vet, uh, her treatment with these drugs were quite successful and so now we're going to hear from an expert in the uh, migraine field who studies these compounds at the VA uh, give us a little more uh, info about how these drugs work and why they're so successful and what's next uh, specifically in research. And uh, this particular interview was really interesting to us because Andy is our direct supervisor. Uh, we work with him every day, and so it was interesting to sit down and interview him uh, for this podcast, and I hope you guys enjoy this. So sitting with us today is Dr. Andrew Russo. Uh, he's an expert in migraine research, specifically a uh, compound called calcitonin gene-related peptide, which is really important in migraine and is the current uh, target of uh, migraine therapeutics uh, that are just now coming to the forefront of uh, treatment in migraine. So Andy, thank you for being uh, on our podcast with us. Um, this is special because I actually work with Andy. And as we move through this whole journey together, um, it's nice to talk to somebody I know first on our very first podcast. Uh, also joining us is Brandon. Ray, uh, whose voice you'll recognize on other parts of the podcast. So, Andy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? So, thank you very much, Levi. This is a yeah. great honor and opportunity that I appreciate you giving me to talk to the vets out there and let them know why we're doing what we do in our labs. So, first, as you asked a little bit about me, so I have 30 cousins, and I was the first one of all of us to go to college 
and uh, certainly the first to become a professor. So it's kind of unusual in my family, and um, my uncles and aunts still don't really know what I do, but they appreciate science, and that's been pretty cool growing up with that background. But all my family really appreciates that we're trying to learn more about the body and how to cure diseases. I got interested in migraine actually in a kind of roundabout way because I'm interested in, and this is going to sound weird, but in how plants grow. So what in the world does a plant have to do with migraine? There is actually a similarity. Plants respond to light. They grow towards the sun. They respond to water, to, to nutrients in the soil. And I really like gardening. Ever since my grandma uh, took me out in the garden and started me teaching me how to pull weeds. So I've always been curious about how things respond to changes around them, changes in their environment. Well, migraine, as it turns out, I think is really very similar to how a plant responds to light. It, migraine is an example of where our brains are responding to stimuli, including light, but it's too much of a response. It's like the plant now is leaning over way too far towards the sun, which is not going to be good for the plant for other reasons. Well, a brain of a person with migraine, I think, responds to stimuli like light too much. So they're oversensitive. They, they, a migrainer can perceive changes in the environment to a greater degree than people without migraines. This is so much information coming in, flooding the brain, that in my opinion, this is just my opinion, Levi. I don't really, none of us really, really know what's going on in the brain yeah. with a migraine. But my opinion is that the migraine is protective, that it's helping the person cut down all that noise, all that light coming into the brain. And so the way the protection occurs is through pain. Pain is a good thing. It's easy to say that, hard to live with it. But acute pain, pain is sending you a signal saying, change something. You stub your toe, hey, you, you, your toe has been hurt. It draws your attention to your toe. Your head starts to hurt with a migraine. It's sending you a signal, change something. So go into the dark room, get away from light, get away from uh, smells, touch, all these stimuli that are, I think, overwhelming your brain at that point because you're leaning too much to the sun. So that's sort of how, as a, I told you, it's a weird story. Yeah. Uh, plants will lead to migraine. But to me, it's a continual thread for my interest with working in the garden with my grandma, growing plants, to uh, now trying to cure migraine. Because to me, it's a window, migraine is like a, a window into the brain to figure out how our brains are so sensitive to these stimuli. Yeah, how do you think that uh, brain injury uh leads to migraines or how does it because there's uh, you know veterans combat veterans especially suffer from post-traumatic headache so they'll get a brain injury and then um, have persistent headaches thereafter how does that compare to migraine headaches that that is a great question so we've got into traumatic brain injury tbi research about five years ago um, and, and primarily because i think we owe it to the vets to figure out what is happening to their brains after traumatic brain injury that is causing these migraine-like headaches. We don't know what's happened, but we, it's our, I feel it's my obligation, our obligation as scientists, to try to figure that out. Why has 
this protective mechanism, as I said, that's my hypothesis, this protective mechanism kicked in. There's been some injury to the brain. So your, your brain is smarter than you give it credit for, I think. It's trying to say something's wrong, change what's going on. So I think your brain is talking to you as a combat vet who's had a traumatic brain injury, saying, make a change. Uh, what is that change to make? God, I wish I knew. But uh, I think that there's been some change. What is a change to, to cure it? I'm really hoping that our research that we've been doing on that peptide you mentioned, my favorite little buddy, calcitonin gene-related peptide, CGRP, will help the vets reset their brain to uh, reduce this uh, yelling in their brain saying, I'm in pain, I'm in pain, make a change. So what we're hoping the change can do can be is to have these antibodies and other small molecule drugs that are being developed by a number of different drug companies now, not by us, but uh, building on research that we've, I'm very, very proud to say we've helped contribute to, that these antibodies and drugs blocking CGRP actions, I think could help reset the brain and reduce that that uh, pain signal come, that's associated with migraine. So, um, in 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 terms that I can understand, how do these antibodies uh, help someone um, recover from migraine? So, do they remove the CGRP from the body? No, that's a really good question. So, they these antibodies are floating around throughout your body, binding CGRP, and they will actually eventually remove it, but they're incapacitating it. Think of it as coming up and, and giving someone who's in a bar looking for a fight, you come up and just give him a great big bear hug so that he can no longer swing his fists and hit anybody. That's what these antibodies are doing. They're giving CGRP a bear hug, they're giving its receptor a bear hug, so the receptor can't do anything. They're they're not they're not taking them out of the room, but they're making it so they can no longer do their 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 job mm -hmm. or do what they want to do, which in the case of the analogy I'm giving is cause a fight leading to this migraine. So we don't really know where this barroom brawl is occurring. We think that it's occurring in the spaces around the blood vessels in the head, in the lining of the brain. We think that's where the barroom brawl is happening, where CGRP is sending these signals to the brain saying, hey, 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 you got something going on here. Too much light, too much sound, too much action. Go go get away, make a change. Uh, we're doing some experiments now in the lab with mice. And I think that's what, a plug I want to put in here that you, you cannot recreate a migraine in a computer. You cannot cure a migraine by doing computer programming or by growing cells in a dish. You need to work with an, an animal, and mice are very good uh, subjects for testing some of these ideas of how migraine is working. We are not doing experiments on people, but we're basing our experiments on what has been done in people before. So it's like reverse translation, if you will. We're going from what's worked in the clinic to try to figure out how it's working, where it's working, 
where that barroom brawl is occurring in a mouse. You don't want to be taking apart people's brains. That they just it's yeah. not a good thing to do. Yeah, what's really interesting about uh, Dr. Russo's work is that he's been pretty influential in the development of these these antibodies, and he's a he's a really good example, I think, Brandon, of of how we can take a preclinical model like mice mm-hmm. and translate it to humans. Would you say? I would say. Um, so, Andy, being at the University of Iowa, um, what was your motivation, or why did you get into specifically VA research? Okay, yeah. So the VA, I. I feel, as I mentioned to Levi earlier, I feel we really have a moral obligation to help our vets. And my dad was in the service. I served in the Navy and and now gets carried through the VA system. And I think that one of the things that the VA does that's really good is they're looking how to treat these vets beyond in uh, in the hospital itself when they come in with a problem, but by supporting research to figure out what's going on with them to make them better from research. And I saw this as an opportunity to pay back the service that uh, people like my dad and uh, other many other veterans have done in, in service for our country. Yeah, so you think so you think research uh, by the VA is pretty critical for the future development of drugs and, and therapeutics? Absolutely. No, yeah. So the VA has very focused and targeted research goals that are designed and meant to help the vets. Yeah. Now, some of that research is basic. Like a lot of the work they're doing in my lab is basic. We don't see any vets in my lab. Uh, we have in the past, but for this project we're doing now, looking at where that barroom brawl is in, in, the, in the brain, we are not seeing vets for that. We're seeing mice. Mm-hmm. What we expect is that what we learn from the mice will inform us how to better treat the vets. The okay. example there being the CGRP antibody. You know, one thing that I've always found fascinating about uh, uh, research in general is the length of time it takes. Um, I own a farm down in southern Iowa, and, you know, when I can go down there and build barbed wire fence in a weekend and build a whole quarter mile of fence, I have something that's very, like, distinct and is going to be there for 100 years um, at the end of that weekend. But when you're doing research, it can often take more than a decade to go from beginning to end. And that's another special thing that I think you've been part of with these uh, CGRP antibodies is starting at the very beginning and moving all the way through. And it took about a decade, I think, for these drugs to go from yeah. from their preclinical model, which you worked on, all the way to uh, human human patients now and then into the, the actual clinic where they are now. But can you talk a little bit about the slow pace of research and how uh, you maintain a drive to keep to keep going? Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I think there's two factors that make for a good scientist. Well, make that three. Three factors that make for a good scientist. First is curiosity. The second is attention to detail. But the third really addresses the point you just made, and that's perseverance. you got to be stubborner than a snake to just to make it in science. Yeah. You, you have to be stubborn and persevere against all odds yeah because, because it can take like it can take like four years or, or yeah. two years even you know two to five years somewhere and then all of a sudden experiments will just stop working yep. and you're left like oh man i just spent two to three years of my life working on something that's not gonna yep. uh, produce anything but the cool thing about science though and this is something that i want to get out there to the listeners is that even when things fail 
Yeah. We learn. Yeah. We learn as much thing. from our failures as our successes. Yeah. What you need though is that that inner spark to keep you going through those failures, and to realize, okay, I'm still making progress even though I feel like I'm sinking. Yeah. Because when you're sinking, you're going to find out what's underwater. But I think that's a part of of doing good science is that even when you have negative results, you learn something from them, right? right. I think that's really important. Our whole uh, our labs currently, our lab is in Andes and, and, and the lab that I'm working in. Um, Brandon, uh, through a series of negative results, found out that mice uh, squint more with CGRP, and we've led to a whole large project and the development of an automated pain system in the lab, which is going to be quite groundbreaking, I think, when, it's, when it comes out, and uh, that's pretty cool. No, Brandon is actually a great example of a great scientist that he paid attention to details, and he persevered through a lot of negative results, a lot of hard work. There's a couple of years of his work that will never be published, probably, because it just didn't work out. But he persevered, paid attention to details, and he was curious what was happening. And he noticed that the mice were squinting when we gave him CGRP. And we went, what? Well, first off, who in the world noticed a mouse squints when you inject something in them? And that's a sign of a good scientist. So I think it's also a good sign is that he's brought up on a farm. He's a farm boy. And this guy, you got to pay attention to what's going on around the farm or else things aren't going to work. Uh, one last question. Uh, where do you foresee your research going uh, in terms of the VA? So our work at the VA with the mice, I think has been really informative towards what you just mentioned, that grimace response. The squint, and as I've heard to Brandon noticing that mice squint, we give them CGRP. So what I'd like to do moving forward is to now to take that observation to people. And so we're gonna start doing some studies in collaboration with Randy Carden, a neuro-ophthalmologist at the VA, to now do facial recognition software analysis of people. And the question is, can we detect if they're having a migraine by the look on their face? So we're going to give them various stimuli. I'd love to give them an injection of CGRP. I really would want to do that. But uh, ethics forbid that. I think those studies are actually done, though, right? In, in, they're in, done uh, over in Europe. Holland. Typically. Denmark. Denmark. That's yeah. it. Denmark. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, there's, so in Denmark, they can inject CGRP into people. Here, I doubt I'd ever get uh, approval. <laughs> from the ethical boards to do that. And it, it, but actually, I, I, I want to just say I've been impressed with how people are willing to volunteer oh, yeah. to advance science forward. Yeah. And in Denmark, people are willing to say, okay, I, I inject this in me. I know it's going to give me a migraine, but do it anyway. Yeah. Okay. You know, I think a lot of migraine patients are desperate for, for something to help them out, right? And even, I, even with this whole new development of, of um, CGRP antibodies that are quite successful at treating migraine, it's not the end-all, be-all. It still only treats 50% of people with migraine. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people with chronic migraine, like like um, the first vet we talked to earlier to, today, um, you know, she uh, responded to this. But, you know, even though she responded, another person might not respond. And she had chronic daily headache for since 2003. That's fantastic. Quite story. So only about half the people are responding to the antibody, uh, which is – a challenge to us and to find out other ways to treat. Uh, there's other peptides out there. We're looking at one now called PACUP that's like CGRP. And we think from our preclinical studies with the mice 
that there'll be people who respond to packup antibody that don't respond to CTRP antibody. So we're looking forward to pushing that ahead uh, in our preclinical studies and eventually to the clinic. But as far as where we're headed with the VA, since I can inject CGRP into people, what we're going to do is, again, building off work that Brandon did in the lab, we're going to give the vets a flash of light. And some work early, early work that we've done, we've seen that the people who have had a traumatic brain injury or who suffer from migraine, even between headaches, they show a, a, a greater response to even a dim light flash than someone who does not get migraines or who has not had a traumatic brain injury. So using facial recognition software, we're hoping to be able to measure the response to light in these people. All right. Well, Andy, thank you so much for sitting down with us and talking with us. My and, pleasure, uh, Levi. We'll uh, see where this goes. All right. Thanks a lot. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.